Okay, honest confession. I can be morbidly introspective. I often tend to get caught in this vortex of self-introspection in my Bible reading, in my prayer times, pretty much any time. You will find me being morbidly introspective. I often rehearse the day and all of my shortcomings and how I sinned and how I failed and I obsess over the things that I did and the things that I didn't do and I obsess over words that I said and words that I didn't say and I obsess over what other people think of me and I obsess over things might have been differently had I acted differently and it's really sad actually. Because I'm a pastor. <laughs> Shouldn't I have it all figured out by now? I don't think so. I'm sure none of you struggle with this, right? But in the off chance that there's at least one of you out there who can relate to my struggles, I've got some good news for you. And the good news is this. Jesus paid it all. We are forgiven. We are clean. We are accepted. And we can relax. And we don't have to activate our inner lawyer every day who interrogates us if we're doing enough because that just won't end well, will it? Putting your inner lawyer to work never ends well. It only leads to despair or pride for the self-righteous among us. And so if your self-examination turns into a cross-examination, then you need to fire your inner lawyer. If you live with this nagging sense of always hearing a guilty verdict, then I've got some good news for you today. It is finished. And you are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen, the Christian life is not about obsessing over your sin. No one grows that way. In fact, it's paralyzing to live a life just focused on self and sin and all of your failures and how you don't measure up. So understand this, Grace. Obsessive self-analysis will always lead to paralysis. If you live life by letting your inner lawyer question you all the time and interrogate you all the time as if you're on the stand and ask you things like, did you do enough? Did you read enough of your Bible today? Did you pray long enough today? Did you even want to pray and read your Bible today? If you live like that, it will paralyze you. It will stunt your growth as a Christian. Obsessive, morbid self-analysis will always lead to a kind of paralysis. And that's no way to live. Jesus did not save us in order for us to spend our days obsessing over whether we've done enough. Discipleship is not about doing more things and trying harder. I'm just going to try harder next time. Maybe then I won't give in to that sin. Or pedaling faster. Or always feeling the need to check off a long list of Columbo-like just one more things. 
It's about following and enjoying Jesus. You were saved to enjoy Jesus. Do you enjoy him? Living life like the way I've described, you won't enjoy him. And so if you're a person who overdoses on introspection, then the gospel is the rehab you've been looking for. If you find yourself obsessing over your failures and sins or how people perceive you or if you're always second-guessing yourself or replaying those conversations in your head, and who doesn't do that? Then you need some good news today. Christian, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. So just relax and enjoy the Lord for crying out loud. It's Reformation Sunday. If you're going to enjoy the Lord on any Sunday, this is one of those days like Easter and Christmas where you need to enjoy the Lord because this is what the Reformation was all about. That you cannot earn your way to God. That you have to look outside of yourself to Jesus for salvation. So you can enjoy the Lord today. Quit being so uptight. I think if Jesus could come and, and, and say anything to us, he'd probably look at all of us and say, y'all are just so uptight. Why don't you relax? You're forgiven. Why are you so tense? Just relax and love me and love neighbor and watch what I do. Instead, we'll all walk around like this, don't we? Listen, if you're prone to morbid introspection like me, then let me encourage you today to focus on your Savior not on your behavior. What I mean is that an unhealthy focus and fascination on your sin and your failures will not prompt you to Christian growth. You must look outside of yourself. You must look to Jesus. You must remember what God has already done for you in Christ. You must, as we say around here often, rehearse the gospel. By focusing on Jesus we grow. By focusing on Jesus, we change. By focusing on Jesus, we are transformed. As Paul already told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed from one image to another, one degree to another. By remembering what Jesus has done for us, we find strength for future obedience. Why? Because, and get this, it's so simple, but we forget it. Because Jesus is the center of everything in the Christian life. And we aren't. Jesus is supreme even in what propels us to growth and transformation. So when you see your sin, you need to take that sin and drown it in the finished work of Christ. And then take steps of love and repentance. The gospel is what fuels obedience. And that's what Paul will nudge the Corinthians toward in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. Paul will encourage the Corinthians to clean up their act and to learn to get some gospel traction in their church again. And he'll do it by pointing them to Jesus. Yes, Paul is going to deal with how messed up this church is and he will deal with those who have not repented. But his desire all along is to see them built up and moving towards spiritual maturity. He's not writing to them to shame them and to guilt them into obedience because that doesn't work, does it? 
Guilting and shaming people into obedience doesn't work. And pastors still think it does, don't they? You got to make people feel guilty on Sunday morning. That's a good sermon, they say. And we've bought into that lie, and we think that as Christians. We think if I feel, if I leave the service feeling terrible about myself, then it must have been a good sermon. That's not Christianity. That's law, and only law pressing down on you. Guilt and shame, it might produce a little bit of obedience for a while, but it will not produce heartfelt obedience and change. And that's what we're after, and only the gospel can do that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul plans on visiting the Corinthians because this church is bleeding out. It's critical mass. They have issues. They are a hot mess. And if they haven't figured it out yet, Paul is serious about visiting them and dealing with all of their issues because this is now the fourth time in four consecutive verses that Paul tells them, I'm coming to see you guys. And then later in verse 10 of this chapter, he's going to tell them, I've got a plane ticket already booked. I am coming to see you and we're going to deal with everything that's going on in your church. And he, bo- he bases his impending visit to Corinth on the authority of Scripture because he alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 1. And when Paul arrives, he says he is going to deal with anyone who has not repented of the blatant sin that was running through their church and destroying it. The people that Paul is speaking of are those who were engrossed in all kinds of sexual sins. Corinth, as I told you last week, was a port city where people came and went and conducted businesses. People were coming and going all the time and involved in all of these things that, could, that you could enjoy in a city on your business trip. They eventually came up with a word. It was called to Corinthianize, which went, meant you went there and you were involved in all kinds of heinous immorality. And that stuff was running rampant, not only in the city of Corinth, but now in the church at Corinth. It was infecting the church. And Paul's saying, this should not be. Last week we saw in chapter 12, verse 21, that Paul was ready to confront those who were involved in impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. And so Paul's not playing games. He is ready to administer church discipline if necessary, because God's glory was at stake in the city of Corinth. And if these church members, Paul says, don't repent, he says, then Jesus is going to do something about it with all of the power that he possesses. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Notice first that Paul lets the gospel shape his ministry. He has been weakened and humbled by suffering. We've seen that through this book. The hard-to-get-rid-of-thorn in the flesh has humbled Paul. But the Corinthians, under the influence of the super-apostles, that group of false teachers that had invaded this church, 
they took Paul's humility actually as a sign of weakness. They didn't think Paul would back up his talk of church discipline in dealing with these people. They said, he's, he's all talk. He writes these big, weighty letters when he's far away, but when he shows up, man, this guy's like a pansy. He doesn't do anything. He's weak. He's whip. But Paul responds by pointing out the nature of the gospel here. He says there's both a weakness and power that's seen in the gospel. Jesus was crucified in weakness, he says. He became a servant. He suffered. And so the cross was the apex of the weakness of Christ. And by focusing on the gospel here, Paul is showing the Corinthians that their beef is not really with Paul. Their beef is with the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ himself. And if they want to persist in sin and damage the church and damage Christ's reputation in their city, then Paul says they are in danger of divine judgment. Paul reminds them here that Jesus is not weak in dealing with his church. He is powerful among his church. And Jesus, not Paul, is really the one who would be doing church discipline if it gets to that point. They might be able to shake Paul, but they can't shake Jesus. So there's not just weakness that is seen in the gospel, there's power too. God raised Jesus from the dead and that power is the very power that Paul will use to straighten the Corinthian church out. Resurrection power is what backs church discipline. That's power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work anytime a church has to do church discipline. We'll talk about what that is in a moment. So you don't want to be on the end of that power. And Paul knows this. And that's why he's calling the Corinthians out again. So that they would repent and just collapse into the arms of Jesus, their first love. And since this kind of resurrection power is behind the imminent church discipline that Paul will carry out, the Corinthians need to examine themselves ASAP. In order to avoid possible destruction, they must examine themselves. And since Jesus lives by the power of God, and Paul does too, then he'll use that Jesus power to deal with them. Listen, never underestimate the resurrection power of God in church discipline. But what is church discipline? What does Paul have in mind with this third visit where he's going to confront these people? Well, there is informal church discipline where we just encourage one another. All of the one another's in Scripture, that's like informal church discipline. That's us challenging one another, encouraging one another, doing those things. But formal church discipline is where a church body, a church family, deals with hardened, unrepentant sin in a member or members of that church family. Formal church discipline of an unrepentant church member is usually a very long process where the church member is lovingly confronted and called to repent of their actions. And after a while, if that person just flat out refuses to repent, then the elders will exercise their right to excommunicate that person and the church family, the church body, will cease fellowship with that member until their heart changes And they repent. And the goal of this is always restoration. Restoration to God first and then restoration to the church family. And it's always motivated by love. 
But what might bring about this kind of formal church discipline? Scholar D.A. Carson says, there are three things that necessitate church discipline. Number one, major moral issues. Number two, major doctrinal issues. And number three, major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. And the Corinthians were dealing with all three of these. They checked the boxes on all three here. But I want you to understand something. Church discipline does not occur because there is sin in a church, because there will always be sin in churches, because guess who the members of a church are? Sinners. We all sin all the time. Church discipline occurs when there is a member who is hard-hearted about something, some issue, and refuses to give up their darling sins and their beloved idols and their golden calves. And they know deep down whether they will admit, admit it and tell you or not. They know deep down that whatever they are doing is wrong. And they know it goes against God's word, but they refuse to stop. And so church discipline should occur when someone's behavior in the church de-glorifies God's name and when it jeopardizes the gospel and the safety of the church and when it jeopardizes the safety of the gospel culture that that church has worked so hard to create. The goal is not, because there's sinners here, the goal is not to make the church a safe place for sin to run wild. We don't want our churches to be places where we're like, well, I'm forgiven, and then we brag about our sins and refuse to repent. Our goal is to make our church family a safe place for confession and repentance. We don't want people to feel free to flaunt their sins here. But we do want to make grace a safe place where people can confess their sins freely. Okay, so Paul is planning on a visit, and he wants the Corinthians to examine themselves, but what does that mean? Well, the examination that Paul has in mind here doesn't mean what a lot of preachers say it means. Look at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. The word yourselves there in verse 5 is emphatic in the Greek. It's yourselves examine. And it's in the present tense. So Paul is saying, continually examine yourselves. But what does he mean? Some, and this is what many of the Puritans did, and I love the Puritans, but I think they were wrong on this one issue. Some think this examining means we sit around and we dig into our heart and we try to unearth every sin and every motive for every sin. Some people take this passage and they get so self-absorbed that their inner lawyer kicks in and their self-analysis leads them to paralysis. I used to think that. I thought this verse was encouraging me to be morbidly introspective. And then I'd read some of the Puritans, and then I'd read and hear sermons by many well-known evangelical pastors, many that you probably know, 
And they'd tell me that I better make sure that I'm saved and I better make sure there's evidence of God's uh, grace in my life and I better make sure there's fruit in my life. Is there enough fruit? I mean, at what point is it not enough fruit? And they'd tell me I better make sure I'm saved and it was just paralyzing. That's not what Paul means. What Paul means is this. He wants the Corinthian church to see where they have placed their trust. Are they trusting in the finished work of Jesus for salvation or are they trusting in their own works? Paul doesn't want them to examine their heart for every little sin. He wants them to examine where they have placed their trust. Are they in Christ? And this command Interestingly, it occurs in the second person plural. This is not Paul telling us individually to dig into our hearts to see if we're truly Christian. This is not a call to test ourselves individually to see if we're really believers. It's not about questioning our own salvation. It's not a call to examine ourselves for evidence of fruit. Is there enough fruit of the Spirit in your life, brother? I don't know if you're saved. Verse 4 is not about looking into our hearts for evidence of conversion. It's not about digging around our lives, trying to point out and find fruit. Instead, it's about a church body who has been entertaining the works righteousness theology of the super apostles who said you can earn your way. Just obey the Mosaic law. So Paul is asking them, who are you trusting for salvation? Jesus or you? Whose works are you trusting in? Yours or Jesus'? Where have y'all placed your faith? Can you pass the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone test? So Paul is calling the Corinthians to check themselves and to see if they are in the faith. He's not asking them to look inward to find righteousness because no one can do that. And if he's asking them to look inward at all, he's asking them to look inward to see their sin and then to flee to Christ. He's asking them to examine themselves and see if they are trusting in their own works or Christ crucified. And he says that they will have failed the test if they examine themselves and determine that they have earned their way to God. Listen, if our examination, which Paul is encouraging in verse 4, if it leads us to Jesus and to rejoicing in his finished work, then it's good. But if our examination leads us away from Jesus, and if it leads us either to despair or pride, then it's not good. So verse 4 is not commanding us to be on a constant introspective journey as to whether we're Christians or if we're doing enough in the Christian life. Am I praying enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I mortifying sin enough? No, Paul is addressing an entire church to examine where they have placed their trust. We don't turn inward looking for proof of our conversion. We always have to look out to Christ. It's objective, not subjective. So, focus on your Savior and not on your behavior. 
Understand this, Grace. We actually perform better. We actually grow as a Christian when we grow in our understanding that our relationship with God is not based on our performance for God and what we do for Him. Rather, it's based on Jesus' performance for us. Christian growth doesn't happen through behaving better. Christian growth happens by believing better. Believing the gospel better. Believing God's promises better. And that's what Paul is after here. Growth happens in the Christian life as we believe everything that Jesus has already done for us. When we take God at his word. And so here's the hard work of sanctification. And it's one of the hardest things about being a Christian. It's to think less of me and my performance and what I do for God, and to think more of Jesus and his performance for me. The irony is that we actually get worse when we focus on ourselves. We become self-absorbed over our performance, what we're doing or what we're not doing for God. We become self-centered as we become consumed with our behavior, whether it's good or bad. And so we actually behave better when we start believing better. Why? Because only grace makes Christians grow. Only grace changes you. Only grace transforms you. Guilt never does that. Guilt paralyzes. And threats don't help either. The threats of the law never produce heartfelt obedience. And that's what we're after. Walter Marshall, one of the Puritans, got it right when he said this, you cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you think that he condemns and hates you. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. When you love him, it is because you see that he has been so good to you. God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster, the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. That's what Paul has been doing throughout this letter. He has been pointing them to Jesus, the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage them to godly living. All that Paul has said about how merciful and kind and glorious Jesus is in this letter, in the first 12 chapters, have been leading to this moment in chapter 13 where he challenges them. So he has front-loaded 12 chapters of the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lift verse 4 about examining yourself out of the context. Remember, there's been 12 chapters of gospel that lead up to this moment where he says, examine yourselves. Don't disconnect it. But then Paul switches to himself 
in verse 6. He hopes the Corinthians realize that if they pass the test and they discover that they are true Christians, then they must also realize that Paul is the real deal because he is the one who brought the gospel to them. He must be a valid apostle, contra what the super apostles were saying. Remember, they were doubting his apostleship. And Paul's saying, if you, if you look, look inward in your church body and say, what do we believe? And we realize we trust in Christ alone. Then Paul is saying, if you pass that test, then you must realize that I passed the test as a true apostle because I'm the one that brought the gospel to you. So Paul is saying, if y'all pass the test because you realize that you are trusting only in Christ for salvation, then I too pass your test and it proves that I am an apostle because I'm the one who brought you the message of trusting only in Christ for salvation. And that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about in 1517. It was all about trusting only in Christ for salvation. It was not about indulgences, paying your your money to the church so that your family could get out of purgatory and go to heaven and paying the church so that when you end up in purgatory, maybe you'll have enough to go to heaven. It wasn't about any of that at all. It was about trusting in Christ alone. The Protestant Reformation was protesting justification by works. It was a protest that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And if you want to know more about that, come back tonight at 6 p.m. We're starting our Reformation Overview DVD, and we're going to start with the morning star of the Reformation. Some 120, 130 years before Luther, John Wycliffe, who was really one of the, the early waves of the Reformation. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning. The Reformation didn't really start in 1517 with Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. The Reformation started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And God had to show up and say, one of your descendants is going to crush the serpent. And then he killed some animals and shed their blood and covered them with garments. They were trying to cover their sin and find right standing with God through that. And God had to come right in Genesis 3 and say, uh, you are justified. Righteousness is given from outside to you and righteousness clothes you, Adam and Eve. You don't make your own fig leaves to come back into my presence. I have to cover you through the sacrifice of something and someone outside of you. So that's really where the Reformation started, by the way. I just popped into my head this morning. I'm still learning. Well, all that Paul has been writing in this letter has been geared toward this church doing the right thing and repenting and being reconciled and restored to God. So look at verse 8 as we continue. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. When Paul says here that we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth, I think he means that the apostolic authority that he uses for church discipline, he only uses where the gospel is at stake. 
He's not a bully. Paul doesn't go around abusing his apostolic authority. He only does church discipline when gospel purity is lacking in a church body and it needs to be restored. So if the Corinthians repent, Paul says they will become strong. And that means that Paul will appear weak in their eyes because he did not show up and use his authority. Paul will gladly appear weak in their eyes, meaning not showing up and doing church discipline with Jesus' resurrection power, if it means they have repented and turned back and were restored to Jesus. This word restoration was used in Paul's day of resetting a broken bone. Paul knows they're a broken church. They need to turn back to Jesus to be healed. They need restoration to have the broken bones of their church family reset. And that's why he's praying for their restoration and praying that they would do no wrong. And that's why he writes them in advance so that he will not have to use his authority for tearing them down, but instead to see them built up in the gospel. So if the Corinthians work towards reconciliation and restoration with Paul and ultimately with God, then they will prove that they have passed the test. They will prove that they trust in the gospel and not the works righteousness theology which was being peddled by the super apostles. Again, Paul is writing to them and telling them everything that he has said about Jesus in the first 12 chapters so that they would repent, so that they would change, so that when he showed up, it would be a celebration and a party. It would be a reunion of friends. Paul doesn't want to show up and say, we have to have all these business meetings per the Constitution and bylaws of Corinthian Baptist Church, and we're going to have to have these formal church discipline measures when I get there. He doesn't want that at all. He wants to show up with his friends and have a party, a celebration. And that's why he says he wrote to them first, so that they would repent. So he doesn't have to use his authority to tear them down. The Corinthians were buying the lies of the super apostles and beginning to believe that their behavior determined their relationship with God. They began to think, if we obey, then we'll be loved. But that's backwards. We don't obey God in order to be loved. We obey because we are loved by God. And so if you want to repent today and be transformed and changed, and if you want to quit beating yourself up all the time, focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. We need a continual reminder that His obedience is what keeps us secure, not our obedience. His obedience keeps us secure, not our obedience, not what we do for God, not our faithful quiet times. Your quiet times do not keep you secure in Christ, okay? Now, please understand, I'm not saying you shouldn't have your quiet time. I'm not saying that obedience is not important because it is. Obeying God's commands is important. You should come away with that understanding after reading the Bible, Obedience to God's commands is very important. Have your quiet times, read your Bible, pray, serve. I'm just saying that what gets you into heaven and what keeps you there is not what you do. It all hinges on what Jesus has already done for you. Of course you need to obey, hate sin, fight sin with the power of the Spirit. 
Of course we believe in sanctification here at Grace. But doing all of this does not make us righteous. It does not keep us righteous. Because righteousness, which is what Luther and the Reformers were getting at, righteousness is imputed, it is credited, it is reckoned, it is granted, it is declared, it is spoken over us by God. And our obedience does not do that. Yes, obedience is important. Paul wants the Corinthians to repent, so obviously he values obedience. But the point I'm trying to make this morning is that the point of Christianity is not your obedience. Please let me say that again. The point of Christianity is not your obedience. It's Jesus' obedience. Let me ask you, if your obedience was the point of Christianity... How's that working out for you? How was your week? Did you do anything that you were ashamed of? Well, of course you did, because you're a sinner, saved by grace in Christ. And what do sinners do? We sin. Even though we're in Christ, we sin. So we all did things this week that we're ashamed of. That's why obedience, though very important, is not the focus of our lives. Jesus is. Don't make your obedience or your lack of obedience the focus of your life. Instead, focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Why? Because if we focus on our behavior, if we obsess about our behavior, whether we had a quiet time or not, oh my goodness, was busy this morning, overslept, I didn't get coffee, and I didn't have a quiet time, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to my life today? It's going to be ruined. Something bad's going to happen because I didn't read my Bible. Well, what did they do for 1,500 years before the printing press? They didn't have a Bible to read, did they? Oh my gosh, I didn't pray enough. I only prayed for 10 minutes. Oh my gosh, I normally pray 30. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my life? Oh my gosh, I said a bad word today. What's going to happen? If we obsess over those things, one of two things will inevitably happen. Number one, for the self-righteous among us, and there are some here, pride. We will become proud at how good we've been. And we'll begin to think, I'm really doing it. Look at me. I started reading the Bible in January, and I made it all the way through Leviticus. And I enjoyed it. Pride, or, number two, if you're like me, despair. We will get depressed at the lack of obedience that we see, and we'll begin, begin thinking, I just keep sinning. And sometimes I don't even want to read my Bible. Am I even a Christian? Believers have a tendency to obsess over their performance, don't we? We have a tendency to focus on what we are or aren't doing. Are we praying enough? Did we read enough of the Bible today? Are we serving as much as we can? Did I give enough money in the offering? And when we do this, we don't enjoy the Lord. When we obsess over our behavior, whether good or bad, we don't enjoy Jesus. And you are made to enjoy him. So if your self-examination becomes a cross-examination by your inner lawyer, then fire your inner lawyer and rest in the finished work of Christ. Don't obsess over what you do or don't do. Focus on Jesus. Enjoy the Lord, 
Enjoy his presence. Enjoy communion with him. Just enjoy your forgiveness. He wants you to enjoy your forgiveness. And then celebrate and laugh and dance and sing. And focus on what Jesus has already done for you through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then, guess what? Transformation will happen. And then you'll finally relax. And you'll start enjoying Jesus. And you'll experience that rest that he promised you in Matthew 11. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today to repent. And thank you that repentance is simply collapsing into your arms. We don't even have to work to repent. We can just collapse into your arms. And we do repent, Lord. We've made it about us. We've become so neurotic and self-absorbed, Lord. We don't relax. We're uptight. We're not enjoyable to be around. We've switched it completely around and made ourselves the center of our life. So we ask you to forgive us. Holy Spirit, turn our gaze toward Jesus. May we behold his glory in the gospel so that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.